Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 252, The Writing Process, a panel from 2013 ICON. If you head over to our website, adventuresinsci-fipublishing.com, this post has a recent update from all of our panelists from this show. Thank you to our guests for letting me record this and for giving us a brief update on your writing process the past week. On our show today is Jim C. Hines, Nancy Kress, Jack Skillingstead, Gregory Frost, and Ellen Datlow. ICON is an annual convention in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. 2014 will have Elizabeth Baer and Scott Lynch, among others. And you'll be able to check out me and Brent, because we are part of the Paradise ICON Writing Workshop. It's basically about the business of writing, and they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. (laughs) (laughs) I like writing. I like reading. I like to immerse myself in books. That seems like a pretty good career choice. (laughs) Oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. And now, constructed on a zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, adventures in sci-fi publishing. Welcome to the writing process. My name is Jim Hines. I am your Toastmaster for this weekend. I will be leading the mockery of our late panelist. (laughs) No, I will. Wait, I'm Spartacus. You can't lead the mockery of yourself. (laughs) He he needs that sort of dramatic entrance. And I've been doing lots of panels, so I'm a little tired at this point. Um, I have written nine books. Number, I have nine books out. Number ten is turned in. I am waiting for my editor to get back at me and tell me all of the things I did wrong. I've also done about 40-some short stories, and the bulk of my writing process is sitting there during my lunch break at work and trying to get my coworkers to leave me the hell alone. I'm Nancy Kress. I've written 32 books, so I'm ahead of you. But I'm older than you are. Um, and about 100 short stories. And many of them, but not all of them, have to do with genetic engineering. And I'm going to explain my process such as it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm Jack Skillingstead. I've published um, uh, 30-some-odd short stories and collected in a Golden Griffin collection and then a couple novels in the last couple of years. My name is Michael Kane. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote all of Shakespeare's plays and my wife how and much I wrote did you, How much did you have to drink at dinner? Quite a bit. Um, no. We just came from dinner. Yeah, he was drinking. We did. <laughs> my name's Gregory Frost. I've written eight, well, I've published, let's say, had eight novels published, written many more novels than that that are not published. That, I guess, we can talk about as part of the process. Yeah. 60-some stories. I'll be reading at 9 o'clock from a story that's in an anthology coming out probably next year called... Out of tune, all of the stories are based on English and Scottish ballads. Hmm. Um, who's the editor and who's publishing it? Uh, Jonathan Mayberry is the editor, and I don't know who the publisher is at this point. It's out of my hands anyway. 
That'll be Harper Collins. Um, Greg, just real quick, you're being recorded. Yeah. Is that a problem? No. Okay. Just you. As long as you don't call me very telling. No. Um, so I, I think that's about it. So lots of stories coming out. Lots of stories that are in print right now. The latest is in the October November Asimov's magazine called No Others Are Genuine. So there. So I'm assuming. You know, how many of you want to be writers or are writers? You fools. (laughs) Okay, we have 55 minutes to talk them out of this. How many of you have submitted any of your work? How many of you have sold any of your work? Oh, good. Cool. So we've got got a little bit of a range. Um, So yeah, the process is you sit down and there are no words and then you make some. So that's not real helpful. I'm going to go to the bar now. talking about coming into this room. What is your actual process? My actual process. Um, you like have from a process, idea right? to finished or day to day? How do we want to do this? I don't know. Whatever you feel like would be useful. Whatever you feel comfortable with. Once you get an idea, what's the first thing you do? I jump up and down very excitedly <laughs> because the ideas are the shiny part. Usually, I need an outline. I need structure. My brain will not hold this stuff by itself. So I will sit down and put an outline together, which for a short story, I might be able to do in an hour. For a novel, it will usually take me a few days. Once I've got that thing, so I have some idea what the whole story looks like, then I can start to write. And then I discover the outline is broken. But even knowing from the beginning that the outline will be broken, I need it. I need it so that I can hold on to the whole thing. And I have not eaten yet, so I'm going to be rude and eat in front of you all. You're a star. What kind of food is star food? Star food. This is Toastmaster food. We don't have that in the East Coast. Okay, my process is the opposite of Jim's. I don't outline. I don't know where a story or even a novel is going when I begin it. And I'm no, I want to make very clear that I'm not recommending this. But it seems to be the only way I can write. What I do is I get an idea, usually with characters, a situation and characters, and the first couple scenes come very fast. And I write them down and I think, okay, where the hell do I go from here? And I write like a man who is driving down, or a woman, a road at night. You know when you have your brights on? You can see a certain distance ahead. What is it, 200 feet, something like that? I can see that far ahead in the story, which is usually maybe two or three scenes. And I hope that by the time I get there, I can, the brights have illuminated the next two or three scenes and I haven't gone off a cliff. And, and again, I'm not recommending this because it's not an efficient way to work. But it's the only way that I can seem to work. By about two-thirds of the way through, the story or novel will have come together and I will know the ending and I will know what it's about and I know where it's going. If it doesn't come together by two-thirds of the way through, I'm in trouble. Because when you grow your stuff organically, a certain percentage of it is going to die. And what happens then is I have to abandon it. (coughs) I have a 400-page novel I'll never finish because it never came together. And then when I'm finished the first draft, the first half or the first two-thirds is essentially a mess because I didn't know what I was doing. So then I start all over again. And the second draft, the first part gets extensively rewritten, the last third less so, because by that time I know where I'm going. Then I'll take it through a third draft where I'm looking at to make sure the characterization, the foreshadowing, um, the scenes are in the right order, that I really need those scenes, that kind of thing. 
and then one more cleanup draft for <coughs> typos and word choice and make sure I have to use the same word three times in the same in a paragraph, stuff like that. So it's four drafts, but the last one goes pretty fast. And that's the working method. And again, I'm not recommending it. That's but before it's, it gets to an editor. Yes, and then an editor will suggest changes, and then there's a fifth draft after a certain amount of fighting. But I, I'm not recommending this, but it's the only way that I've seen able to write. Tony Morrison, our latest American Nobelist, said, I write in order to discover what I'm going to say. And that's essentially how I work. But again, for the fourth time, I'm not recommending this because it's not, it's not efficient, but it seems to be the only way I can write. Well, saying that repeatedly seems to suggest that people have a choice, and I don't think they really do. Um, Ursula Gwynn said something similar. She was being interviewed about the Earthsea trilogy, and the interviewer asked her, so did you draw maps of the archipelago and all this stuff before you started writing? She said, how could I draw a map of it? I hadn't been there yet. So <laughs> she drew maps afterwards now that she knew where everything was. And um, I think it's a, a natural um, terror of, of any creative person, writers in particular, to want to know where you're going before you get in the car and turn the key. Because especially in, in something long like a novel, you're committing yourself to sit there every day for months and months and months. And if you don't know where you're going, it's frightening because you know you're going to have those days where you can't, you're just lost and you can't get anywhere. But if you're not the kind of writer who can outline ahead of time and, and have this road map that you can follow pretty closely, you're just not. And you can discover that easily enough by starting to write novels. And there's, there's no magic or trick to it. You sit down and you have your idea or whatever, you outline it, whatever you want to do, and then you start writing pages. And I recommend writing a certain number of words a day or pages a day and you set a you set a goal that you can hit on your worst day or what you imagine will be your worst day and you'll be wrong about that <laughs> you imagine I can do a page a day if you write one page a day at the end of the year you have you know a shortish novel draft but you have it and you can probably do one page on your worst day I always try to outline because I desperately want that lifeline and my outlines never work, and I never learn that I can't outline. The, the book I'm on now, I was, I was so convinced I, I can do this, I can have kind of a loose structure. I had this idea. I, I, I'm going to have the, a loose structure, but it'll be structure, and I'll know how it's going to end, I'll do all this stuff. And I thought I had that, and of course, 20 pages in, it just it wasn't working. I could see I wasn't going to hit any of my marks, and the thing was going off into left field. And then I had to make a choice about whether... I was going to follow it into left field, or if I was going to be the guy, the outfielder that just wanders off the, you know, off into wherever. And you can't do that. You can't force it. Your your best bet is to follow wherever the story's going, because that's it's going to lead you to the end of the story. But like Nancy, I don't recommend it because you wind up with a lot of work that you can't. Sometimes you can't salvage. You mentioned some novels that maybe you wrote before you started publishing. I wrote eight novels before I got anywhere with publishing. I wouldn't even, there's, there's one that I would consider um, uh, revising someone now that I've published some novels and maybe I can do something with it. But most of those books were books where I just learned to sit down every day until I had 500 pages and then sit down every day again until I had another 500 pages <coughs> and so on and so on and so on, and that's how I discovered my writing method. And there's no quick shortcut for this. You, you have to write a lot. You just have to, and then you figure out what kind of writer you are. 
And there's not one right way to do no, it either. No, no, no. Yeah. But there is one right way for you to do it. Okay. But readers do not care how you got there. No. They just want the end result. Right. How do you work, Greg? For, I was going to preface all of this by saying that, that there's a wonderful quote by Kurt Vonnegut, who said that his first drafts all feel as if they're written by somebody named Phil Boyd Studge. <laughs> and I think all my first drafts are pretty much written by Phil Boyd Studge, too. I'm, I, if I check, I'm pretty sure of that. When I started out, let me put it this way, the best course I ever took in high school was typing. Mm -hmm. um, and on an IBM Selectric, which is what we used in the days when I started out writing, um, I could type about 90 words a minute, and that's faster than I can think. And what would happen was I would just get lost in doing this, and it would all turn to shit really fast because I can't keep up with the fact that I'm, I'm typing. It became this sort of insane automatic writing. So I started writing in a notebook with a fountain pen to force myself to actually slow down. And something very wonderful and tactile happened when I used a fountain pen and wrote in a notebook. Do you still do that? Yes, I still do that. So I write what I call a zero draft, which is longhand. And that draft, it is total chaos. It is. You write two pages and then you go, oh, I've got to make some notes about the, the actual beginning of this because those two pages are stupid. And you write notes to yourself about what the story's going to actually look like or I start writing about the character, I start telling myself the story. Depending on what story I'm approaching, it could be a dozen different things. It could be a total free write session where I try to shut off my higher brain and let the lizard brain take over and just write like crazy, anything at all. And then that can be a mess. That can be an absolute chaotic mess. But from that material, I start seeing a shape for the story. And at the point where I really see the shape of the story, I'll either make a, a short outline if it's a short story. Um, or if it's a novel, I'll sketch out you know, five or six chapters, some notion of that. And I'll start writing. And I'll just start writing on the, on the laptop and go with it. Sometimes I'll write chapters longhand as well, whole chapters, uh, in a zero draft and then come back to them on a laptop. It varies depending on how I feel about the material or my relationship to the material. Again, I don't recommend it because, you know, everybody's got a, a different form, a different yeah. way of approaching things, but that's kind of the way I have to work. I have to have that longhand session of chaos at the beginning of the thing in they, order for the pieces to line up. Uh, people do have some very weird working methods. Very briefly, here are three writers who have really, really weird methods. Connie Willis outlines extensively, has a complete outline of those very long novels, and then writes her scenes out of order. Whatever she feels like writing on a given day, she writes the scenes out of order and stitches them together later. Ted Chang <coughs> writes the last sentence first. Mm -hmm. He says he can't write the story unless he knows the last sentence, and then he can work towards it. And Michael Swanwick, who has the weirdest one of all, from my point of view, he will write the first day, he'll sit down and maybe he'll write three pages. The second day, he'll revise those three pages and get another half a page, maybe. The third day, he'll revise those three and a half pages and maybe he'll get another half page or a page. And when he told me this, I said to him, well, Michael, when do you stop going all the way back to the beginning to revise? And he said, well, each, after I've gone over it about 20 times, then I'm willing, you know, I'll be moving on. And to me, this would be like chewing the same cud for a year. <laughs> I, I could not do it. You know, Cap well, but that's maybe not the story. I mean, Joe, Joe Haldeman is a, a, a longtime friend of mine. Joe gets up early in the morning, and he sits down with a fountain pen and a notebook, 
and he composes every sentence in his head. He turns it over in his head, he works it in his head, he makes it perfect without putting it down on paper. And when it's perfect, he'll write down the sentence. And he'll do a good morning, a good morning's work for him is like a page of sentences. And then he goes to the laptop for, for an hour or whatever and he types everything up in the laptop. But when he's typed it up in the laptop, it's like 90% finished. There's not a whole lot of revision for him. Yeah, what Michael's done, he's, he's done, done because he's revised it 20 times. Catherine okay. Asaro works on five or six novels or short stories at the same time. When she's bored with one, she goes to another. I would find, that to me, this would I be like adultery. And I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. I could not do that. Ray Bradbury, he had a reputation because he talked a lot about his writing process and it would... You know, you'd get up in the morning and vomit on the paper and all this stuff. And it, and it what, did, wait, 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 wait. Vomit on the paper? Well, he didn't use the word vomit. But he would, he would wake up and go right to his typewriter and write a story. And he'd oh, write, oh. write a story a day, right? So it gave the impression that this stuff, these wonderful images and sentences just flowed out of him. But when you read a little more closely in interviews and pieces that he wrote, Really, he would do that. He would on Monday he would write a story, write a complete story in a sitting. But then he would write the story again on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right, mm -hmm. beginning to end. So he really had like five or six drafts before it went out anywhere. And he really, really, really worked on his uh, sentences and his style. So even though he had a sort of a reputation and a his presentation was one of sort of barely contained um, imagery and emotion and whatnot. He really worked at it. I, somebody, William, not William Nolan, but um, a guy that sort of chronicled Bradbury. I was looking at this book once, and he had a he had a a page of typescript from the Martian Chronicles, and it was like a solid paragraph of a description of Mars, right? Some landscape with a little bit of stuff going on, and then you saw the re the final revised page. You had this big solid paragraph, and then the the page as it appears in the Martian Chronicles. It's the page is all broken up. There's dialogue, sequence, standalone sentences, very short paragraphs. He, I mean, he went through that thing meticulously, rendering it down, like you know, putting the bones in the boiling water, getting it down to its absolute essentials. And instead of a whole page of this stuff, he had like this much. It was terrific. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that that all of this has in common is one way or another. There's a lot of thinking and a lot of reworking and a lot of mental work and a lot of revising and figuring out the story. Whether you do it up front, you know, I have heard rumors of these people who can work on their outline and work it and work it, and when they finally write the book, well, there it is. They actually have outlines that work. Mm -hmm. Or just jumping in and seeing where it goes, you know, you're getting the writing done, but that work comes later in the process. Or in the middle, when you're writing and then going back and chewing your cud for a year. Frederick Forsyth wrote or worked on outline structured uh, the day of the jackal for eighteen months, and then spent three months writing it. Eighteen because months on the outline. Eighteen months on the outline on on all the research and the outlining for it. Eighteen months, and then only took three months to write it because at that point, all he was doing was connecting tissue to the thing that he'd already built, so he could write it really fast at that point. So it was a very quick... John Irving is kind of like that. He'll spend years thinking about a novel and taking notes and all this stuff. And like Connie, he'll 
finally arrive at his last sentence before he's written the first one. Well, and, and he does say that it changes, that sentence isn't always, you know, chiseled in stone. But that's, that's his target. He says, how can I possibly start the novel about these characters before I know how they end up? That's his, his thinking. Other people, they don't want to know that. They want to discover who their characters are along the way. Now Samuel Delaney has a, an interesting essay in a, in a, originally published in a collection of... Those Who Can. Those Who Can. Great essay. But he says he distrusts the term plot, so he didn't want to write about plot anyway. So instead he writes about his process. And he described his process, the, the analog he used for his process was you, you start out with a, uh, a theater stage, you know, basically your mind's theater, and you write your first sentence and it's like a spotlight shines down and now you see something very clearly. As soon as you write that sentence, it suggests something off in the shadows of that sentence. You write another sentence and that shines another spotlight on that. And that essay was really important yeah, to me as a, yeah, a younger it's a great writer. Essay. And he, yeah. his situation was a vague, a vague man walks into a vague hotel room. Right. That's all he has. And then he goes to the theater of his mind. And now you're standing outside the door. What's the door look like? All this stuff. And now he's describing the door, how, it, how the handle turns loosely yes. in his collar and all this stuff. He's noting all this stuff down. And the sharper that becomes the language melding with the image, the sharper that becomes to where he's you know, grasping the door handle and opening it, that propels him into the next thing he's going to see. And he was writing this uh, kind of Chandler-esque uh, detective thing. And it, he moves in, and now there's, now there's a vague woman sitting on a, a vague bed, and he starts looking more closely at it and notating it. She's and, dressed. Yeah, it's all this stuff. It was really interesting to me. Um, but the big thing I took away from that essay in particular was his statement that the act of actually writing it down, however you do it, whether you're typing it or a longhand or whatever, focuses and changes the vision that you think you have in your head, which is why I think you say you start with an outline, I start with an outline, but then if I go back to that outline 100 pages later in a novel, it's totally invalid. The words you're choosing yeah, to, to define this thing, change vision. your vision, yeah. sharpen it or change it, and it could make it more vague and you pick the wrong word. So you go yeah. back and, and mess with it some more. And, and yeah. Just to finish that off, um, my method with short stories was always, when I finally got to it, <laughs> was to write the story and then go through it again and again and again until there wasn't anything in it that wasn't supposed to be in it. And this took, even for a short story, this took quite a while. And I think this is why I have more trouble with novels because a short story I could kind of hold in my head and I could work it like that, basing it on the types of words I was choosing and how that influenced the vision and all that stuff. With a novel, if you have like 100,000 words or 120,000 words, it's, it's costly. To, to pile up all those pages and then start yeah. from the beginning I'm a, again. I'm a less careful writer than Jack and a less literary writer than Jack. And for me, the actual words don't suggest, the actual images and words don't suggest what's coming next, the way you two guys yeah. are describing. For me, it's the character. I, I have to feel that I can inhabit this character, that in a sort of mystical system, I can become this character. And then it flows for me what happens next from what the character would do, which flows out of what the character is. The words themselves, and, and I'm not as literary as you are, the words themselves don't suggest what's going to happen. What's going to ha what the character's feeling suggests the words. And, and I, my, my fiction is very character driven, and that's, 
That's the way it goes. It's, so you're, it, you're more like Andre Dubois. I don't know, because I don't know how he did anything. Well, that's what he said. When he first started out writing fiction, um, he would write, he would try to write stories and go, what happens next? And so he would, he would approach the story from a causally connected approach. Mm -hmm. of, like, I write a scene, now what happens? Now what happens? And he didn't like the stories that he ended up with very much when he did that. And so instead, he approached the story sort of vertically burrowing down into the character and working the character, working the character until he knew that character so well that he felt like he was just following the character through That's how the, it is the for me. story. And I was once on a panel with Connie Willis where we were talking about this. And I said that for me, the best moment in writing is when the character takes over and seems to be directing you what to do. And she said, no, wait, wait, Dancy, wait, she said. The character can't take over. You created this character. It can only do what you tell it to do. And all, and all I could say to her was, it doesn't feel that way. When I've become the character enough, it feels as though the character is leading me on. Um, of course I've created the character. I'm God. But it feels like the character is directed me what to do. And, and that kind of feeling where you're, you're in the story so deeply that there's no difference between you and the character, for me, that flow state is the best part about writing. It doesn't happen every day, or maybe not even every week. But when it happens, that's the best part. One of the things that I've, I've started doing in the past few years that's been very helpful, you know, since my outlines keep getting broken, um, is you know, just writing a couple of sentences at the top about my protagonist and the other main characters that this is what this person wants you know, for the course that's of the book. Critical. He wants to rescue this other character and stop this person from blowing up the world. And every time I get stuck, every time I get lost, I can go back to that and say, oh, right, this is what he's trying to do. What is the next step for him to accomplish that? You know, no matter where he is, this is what he wants. What does he have to do next? And most of the time, it, it tells me where the story needs to go. You can see from this that whatever way you can get get into it. There's all different ways to get into it. And the only way you'll discover what works for you is by doing it. Yeah. When you say you inhabit a character and that you, it, you become that character in some sense, do you feel resentful if an editor wants you to fix, change that character because they don't see it the way you see it? You know, I'm not sure that's ever happened. I've had editors object to a lack of foreshadowing. I've had editors object to um, different things. But never to the the core what I, what seems to me the care the core characterization. I, well, I'm thinking of one mm -hmm. where I could. This is a story I sold at Tor.com to Ellen. A novella, and I found certain things about your character I thought were not did not. Did I not, wanted you to change, right? You wanted them strengthened. You wanted the connection strengthened, and that I'm perfectly willing to do. But you didn't want me to make Zach a different person. No, I just thought that. Well, I thought he was... You wanted me to... He was less obnoxious. I wanted him to be less obnoxious than you made him. You wanted me to... But that was foreshadowing that at the end he was going to have a change. So I saw your criticisms as saying, you need to foreshadow this more by making him less obnoxious in the beginning, because in the end he's not going to be. And that seemed to me perfectly legitimate, because I looked at that as a foreshadowing thing, not a you need to make Zach a different person. Okay. Oh, that's the way it seemed to me. I think another thing about this, though, that maybe is slightly being left out is that regardless of the 
wide variety of approaches we have to the story and the ways we get into it. One, yes, you, you, you have to actually do the physical writing. Sitting around and thinking about doing the writing real soon now will not get a story <laughs> created. You only are functioning in many ways when you're actually writing the story. But we all have some kind of vision or sense of a thing that we're writing toward, I think, when we're, when we're doing it. I don't know how clear that is for everybody necessarily, but it seems like that's, that's something that, I, and I think that's something that it's really hard, if not impossible, to teach in writing workshops, is how to have that, that vision or image of the, of the story you're actually trying to write in however vague a form, sort of burned into the back of your brain so that you're, you're actually going someplace. I think a lot of people have that, they get a little tail of a story or some kind of a spark. Um, all writers do that is different from anybody else is that they take it seriously and try not to let it go and maybe mess with it a little bit. And what you were saying about you know, actually sitting down at your keyboard, um, this is the simplest thing. It's the simplest thing about writing. You can, you can start, start from anywhere at any point mm -hmm. and sit down with a pencil or a type, you know, in the old days, a typewriter or a computer keyboard or whatever, and just start. Nobody's stopping. Doesn't cost anything. <laughs> you just do it. Nothing but, happens. But nothing is at the same. It's so simple and easy. But at the same time, it's it's got to be one of the most difficult things there is to do to show up every day because nobody cares whether you write your story or your book. And for sometimes for years and years, nobody cares about it. When you start selling, they kind of care, but they don't really care unless they have you <laughs> under contract. You're always by yourself. You're always going into your room. You're always going to your desk and picking up your notepad and your, your computer. It's simple. You just write your pages. If you're but George all the psychological factors can be real. <laughs> I think there's a certain personality type that you have to have to succeed long-term as a writer. I've t I teach all the time, and I've taught for 35 or 40 years. And I have seen talented students who have never gone on to have a career or actually never produced another story after my class. Maybe my class is to blame for that, but I don't think that's the point I'm making. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You have to be the kind of a person that not only can tolerate being by yourself alone for lengths of time, but actually needs and craves it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're going to be spending a lot of time with people who don't exist. And you have to be able to go into your study or Starbucks or wherever it is you write and be without anybody else around. You have to be able to tolerate loneliness. You have to be able to tolerate rejection, because you will get some. And you have to be able to genuinely care about things that aren't there, that don't exist. My brother never reads any fiction. Neither does one of my sons. And their, their reasoning is exactly the same. Why do I want to read about things that didn't happen? How do they well, know what this happened? is a totally foreign um, mindset to the writer who cares passionately about things that didn't happen. And, and you have to have that kind of a mind if you're going to be a writer. I have a lot of students who want to have written, but they don't want to yeah. actually write. I read a writing book by John Gardner, a literary writer, and he describes his writing shack at some point, where it was away from the house, he had his desk, and it was so small that if he stretched his arms like, like this, he could touch the walls. And it was just clotted with manuscript paper. And we'd go out there like for all these marathon sessions. I thought this was the most appealing, coolest thing I could think of. And I would tell it to people who weren't 
writers are interested in writing, and they thought it was like a horror show. <laughs> what, lock yourself in a shack behind the house <laughs> and, and rip words out of thin air all day long? It's got to be crazy. Yes. So I think you but need a little of that where I want to yeah. do that. Yeah. You know, I want to I want to do it that way. And have you heard of National Novel Writing Month? Sure. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. NNO yeah. Yeah. Uh, What is your opinion of that? I think it can be good to shake, to shake <clears> you loose <throat> if you haven't been writing and you want to write... Um, it forces you to get something down on paper, a lot of some things on a lot of paper, um, for one month. Yeah. And it's, it's a good way to, it, it's equivalent of electroshock therapy. You know, you, it, it makes you do it and it shakes everything up and I think that that can be a very good thing. Whether or not it's a, a saleable novel, um, maybe not if you're going that fast with that little slot. But on the other hand, it could be the outline of a saleable novel. The only cautionary thing I have about that is if you treat writing a novel as a once a year event, and then it's gonna be this kind of communal thing where you can talk about it in social media and stuff, you're probably not ever gonna wind up writing a decent novel. You have to be obsessed with this stuff. You have to wanna to be doing it all the time, even when you don't wanna do it and it's painful and difficult to get yourself. Yeah. So if, if you need a big social network to get you to write, you're you're not in the right mindset. But you can just do it because it's... But you, yeah, you can. Yeah. I mean, I'm not yeah. against it or anything. I'm just saying, but try I, not to make it an event. Try to, Maybe I'm going to get my first draft of my book yeah. during NaNoWriMo, I think and then I'm going to continue to work on I, it afterwards. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people uh, sort of that I think you're speaking to there who will write for NaNoWriMo every year, and then that's it. They stop, and they don't necessarily do anything with what they you know, spent a month burning through. It's like, that was fun. It's like going to a concert or something. Well, that's over. I'm moving on to the Well, also, instead of writing, is it 50,000 words? Yeah. yeah. Instead of writing 50,000 words in 30 days, try writing like a, a more reasonable novel length, say 90,000 words in three months. That's still not easy, yeah. but you're like yeah. more likely to come up with a, a coherent manuscript. I think a lot of the NaNoWriMo people, they've written this thing so fast yeah. that it's... It can it's be the too, basis, too though, the outline. To, 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 I mean, my yeah. first novel was 75,000 words yeah. in three months, and it's worse crap than some of the nano novels I've written. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, it was my first novel. Yeah, my I, first I think period. you need to yeah. know what you're going to get out of it. I mean, I've, I'll put on my old man's shoes for a minute. Oh boy. I was doing novel dares before nano was a thing. There was a group of us who would go online together and post our word counts, and we were going to do at least... Yeah, and sometimes we'd aim for like 80,000 in a month. Because, you know, back in my day... <laughs> You're not that old. I had 100,000 in a month for one year. So. But it, it motivated us. It got us writing. And you just... You need to know what you're, what you're doing, what you're getting out of it. Nano is not going to, in most cases, produce a polished novel that you send to New York oh, and no. become rich and famous. And now you're Richard Castle. Maybe. It is going to give you 50,000 words of stuff. It might be good stuff. It might not. It might be relatively complete. It might be the first part. But what NaNoWriMo can do is establish the habit of writing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know a lot of people that say, well, I can't, you know, I can't find the time to write. You don't find it. You make it. You yes. give up the bowling league or the coffee clutch or whatever else, or you get up early. Um, Gene Wolfe, for 20 years before he was able to go full-time, was the editor of a trade, industrial trade magazine, and he got up at five so that he could write for a couple basement. hours before he went to work with a full-time job. You do whatever you have to do. You make that time. Um, and if you're not willing to do that long-term, then maybe you should pick a different, 
a different area of the arts. Just as if you're not willing to be by yourself a lot of the time, then try theater, which is a much more collaborative venture. Here's a question. Yeah, that might help you, the idea of the writing shack. Maybe the call center would let you put up one in the, in the back, and you could go there for your lunch hour and, and write without being disturbed. Sure. They promoted me to management. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, sure. Even when I'm writing, I have to be there for when my team breaks stuff. Uh-huh. We're sorry. Well, Nate O'Reilly can help you write the first chapter you're not there is no rule in nano that says you can only write 50,000 words. Yeah, right. Go for the full 100. The other thing I like about NaNoWriMo is you do track the words. Um, a novel can look so overwhelming, but if you can see evidence that you are actually moving forward, it can help. So track something. Before there were computers, when I was writing longhand, I would count the words, you know, count an average page, and keep track of my word count for every day because it showed me something was happening. You know, there were 300 words today, there were 700 words the next day, whatever. I would keep a chart, and it would show me that something was happening. So tracking something can be useful, and NaNoWriMo will get you in the habit of counting words and tracking them. Then I used to make bar graphs and pie charts, but that's only because I'm OCD. <laughs> really out of control. I mean, yeah, I was. In terms of, you know, you've got 50,000 words, you've got half of a novel. The first draft of Codex Born was 49,000 words. The final draft was like 104,000. But the first draft, which was very skeletal and had lots of undescribed people t- speaking in empty white rooms, yeah. Yeah. It was 48,000 words yeah, for me to get it Let me just say this about that. Me. There are writers who need to be putter-inners like you, who write mm-hmm. skeletally and then need to go back and add. And there are writers who need to be taker-outers like Jack, who you said you pare your things down as far as they'll possibly go, mm-hmm. taking out everything unnecessary. And it helps if you know which kind of a writer you are, yes, because then does. you know how to approach your second draft. Yeah, James Patrick Kelly says that with every story of his... When he thinks the story is done, he goes back for one more pass and removes 10%. And I thought, that sounded like a good idea. See, I'm a So I went back and I did that, and I added 20%. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot, and I've never managed on that final pass to make the story shorter, but I'm really good at making it. Well, that's what you need to do then. I'm a a putter-inner, too. My first drafts are are like yours. Are a little too, they're not that sparse, but they're a little too sparse, and I need to put more stuff in. Yeah, I think I, I, I think I write the way painters paint, that there's that first coat that sort of sketches out the story, and then with each subsequent pass, I'm adding layers and layers yeah. and layers of color to it, and it's building up. So. Tim Powers writes like that, too. He says his first drafts are pretty bare bones, and then he'll go in and start adding mm-hmm. detail. Yeah. So his storytelling process isn't, isn't dependent on language, although he's, he's great with language. I get both kinds of students. You know, some of them I say, this story is a third over its, its best fighting weight. And, you have to, and I'll show them how they've got to take stuff out and, and compress the language and make it more, more economical. And others will say, you know, I can't see anything. I can't smell anything. You have to add some stuff in here and, and ground me in the story. Smell is really important. Too, and people forget yeah. to put it in yeah. the story. Yeah, most manuscripts are not smelly enough. <laughs> <laughs> you, need, you need to go through and put them in. What's I've got a cat that takes care of that for me. Yeah. 
it's funny you say that because when I when I point that out to students, the stories will then show up and invariably there will be a scene where somebody has to go into an alley and it, inevitably it smells like piss. That is the only smell they think they need to put in there. It's like, what is the thing with urine? Like that's the only smell you can think of to represent in the entire story. Yeah, I know. There's a smell everywhere you go. It's yeah. a little harder if you're writing a, if you're writing a, a scene in a cafe and two people are drinking a cup of coffee. It's easy to come up with all kinds of sensory detail, yeah. including smell. But if you're in uh, a more antiseptic environment, what what are you smelling? What are you going to put in there? You can't just it, if it's all visual. Uh, eventually, it starts feeling a bit flat. Textures too. What does it feel like? What is mm -hmm. the texture? So Jim, I, I can. I was going to say I can beat you on first. No, my first novel mm -hmm. was seventy-four pages long. Seventy-four pages. <laughs> yes. Single spaced or double? Uh, double spaced. And you called this a novel? Why? Um, because it was my first attempt to write a novel, <laughs> thinking that I had enough material for a novel. Oh, I, I didn't. <laughs> I see. Yeah. So I learned Questions? some things that way. Had anything worked in a shared world, like use world, where you have multiple authors? Space. Is it a good idea, bad idea? Uh, I have. I've, I've done it a couple times. Yeah. And none of it is my best work. Um, I do, th there are players who are team players and there are players who not, are not. I'm not a team player. I, I don't work well with others. And I, I think for some it produces very good work. But for me, it doesn't. I don't like being handed the world. Yeah, I've, I've done a few. I did some uh, Liebeck stories for Will Shetterly and Emma Bull way, way back when. I did those. Um, and I've got a novella in a shared world anthology called V Wars that's out right now that was edited by Jonathan Maybury, which is seven novellas. Uh, but he created the, the rules of the world and the world itself, so we were all writing in his world. But I would sort of agree with you, all of that stuff almost feels like work for hire in a strain. I, I haven't written fiction like that, but I was hired to write a series of graphic novels, and they were, they were almost like television scripts. These two guys, had, one guy was a, a big guy at Marvel Comics, another guy worked at Disney, and they got together and they, they started their own company and they concocted this world for uh, young adults and it was a kind of a space opera with this generation ship inside of the asteroids going. And they wanted to hire some science fiction writers to do scripts, and the scripts were, um, I didn't know anything about this, by the way. I didn't know, I have a clue about how to write a, 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 a page of script for a, a graphic novel. But I took it anyway. I said, yeah, I'll do that, because I wanted to see if I could do it. And it was, uh, there were very strict rules. They had to be 90 pages. You couldn't have more than four panels on a, on a page. You can have more than X number of words per dialogue balloon. Um, these are your characters. You can add characters, but these are your core characters. This is the environment. Everything is like the Bible of a, a television series. Everything is kind of set out. Now you can do whatever you want. You can invent a religion. You can do whatever, but you have to work sort of within these parameters. And I found it extremely easy, I get, partly because it wasn't writing prose. The language didn't count. And I found it very easy to work in these guys' world, even though it's nothing like I would normally write and would do anything like space opera. But there it all was. And all I had to do was sit down and visualize panels. And if I started running a little long, I would just do a splash page, which would eliminate like three panels on the page. 
and so forth. And it was the easiest thing. It was the it was it was really wonderful. This thing was supposed to go on and become this big deal, but their company collapsed. But for a while, I was writing these things at a rate of um, one script in two weeks, and I, they were paying me a thousand dollars a script. So I thought I might be able to make this work. You know, maybe I could quit my job and all this stuff. But it collapsed. Company went bankrupt. I was in a, a, an anthology, Mirasaki. Fred Pohl and Poole Anderson did the, the background. Poole Anderson designed the planet. Fred Pohl designed the cultures. This was obviously a while ago. Um, designed the cultures for the two worlds, its two uh, twin planets. And a bunch of us wrote stories in it. And I don't think that a single one of those stories got on anybody's best stories of the year list or was nominated for any awards or anything else because all of us seemed to do better work when we were writing alone. Now just to jump in and be contrary here. <laughs> is, you know, when you talk about not making the best of lists, I'm trying very hard not to make eye contact with Ellen right now. <laughs> but from talking to the tie-in writers and all of that, they're also... <clears throat> No, they will talk about um, there's sort of this automatic preconception that tie-in work is not as good. Oh, I don't know about novels. Of, yeah. I've only done short stories, and that's short the only area also. I can move in. I mean, I'm not talking about like Star Trek novels or something because I've, I've never done a novel in an existing I was world. I'm talking about the Medea's world by Harlan. Harlan. Is that why some of the stories in that nominated for you? I don't know. Mirosaki was supposed to be modeled on that model, but it didn't enjoy the success that Medea's world did. Well, Harlan's other... Well, that wasn't a shared world. I was thinking it was collaboration. Wow. Uh, Partners in Wonder. Yeah, none of those stories, I mean, some of them were pretty good, but none of them were um, their best work, except for maybe the block collaboration. I once was on a panel where I suggested to some of the people who had written story for Heroes in Hell that that wasn't their best work either, and I barely got out with my life. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. never tell that to a writer director. I was on the panel. We were talking about shared worlds. I was saying, this is my opinion. And uh, it did not go over well. When you guys are writing, you're thinking about like, kind of like, like the shiny part of the story, the part something you're really attracted. Is it, is it kind of like... Shiny. You know what I mean? Is it kind of like the... Um, yeah, like... like um, is it kind of, like the, is it kind of like, the, like the complication, maybe? Or is it kind of like maybe like... Um, maybe some, some way the character is going to turn out? What, what is it? I mean, it's sort of like... Puts life into it for you guys when you're writing. Puts, yes, my Puts life into it? Well, I mean, like, I've read a lot of dull stories, and nothing really happens <laughs> in them. They kind of like, like, like you know, there's a little bit of character. <coughs> it's like, yeah, you know. For me, it's the voice. It's, it's not even the situation or anything. I think a fairly dull situation handled with a, a, um, a, a powerful voice or a strong point of view can do it for me, yeah. What you th what you found dull, other people might not, and what you would you know, and vice versa, because taste no. enters into this so much. Somebody liked those stories well enough to publish them. Yeah. Sometimes, if if I'm following your que your question right, you know, I will when I'm writing, when I'm going along, I will have in the back of my mind, I, I would probably call them moments of awesome, <laughs> where like in the first uh, when I was doing Libriomancer, I knew. Isaac was going to pull a lightsaber out of a book and kill a vampire. And I wanted to get to that scene. You know, and it was one of those that I, I got there, I wrote it, and I was like, oh, 
It's there. It was awesome. Thank you. What comes next? I don't care. He just diced a vampire with a lightsaber. Take that, genre. And, and there are some of those sort of milestones along the way, but I'll, you know, I also find as I'm going that some of the quiet moments can be just as powerful. Some of the you know, stuff that's almost dull. Like in the second book, I, I have them taking refuge in a library overnight. And it's like, okay, they go here, time passes, they go out and fight more bad guys. And that just sort of downtime became, at least for me, one of the most powerful scenes in the book. So, yeah. But I still like the lightsaber. Um, the first one is called Libriomancer. Glenn Cook has it, and I'll, I'll give you a bookmark afterwards. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your very own. Codex Born is the sequel. Right. Anyway. There are many more to come. <laughs> you had a question. Do you guys ever try to, or maybe make use of forcing yourself into like more traditional story structures, like the three act or like the hero's tale or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I've tried that <laughs> with, with the same results of the, the outline. I was trying that with this novel. I have a friend um, who started publishing about when I did. Um, about 10 years ago, started publishing short stories in the magazine. Actually, he started a little bit later than I did. And um, I have a kind of a competitive nature, and I was always a little bit ahead of him. I mean, we're friends and stuff, maybe more publications and all this stuff. And um, he had this novel he'd written, and we shared, shared the same agent. This is how we met each other. And this agent wasn't doing either of us any good. And I wound up firing her, and she wound up just ignoring, <laughs> ignoring him. She couldn't sell his book. And uh, he'd pretty much given up on him. And I was sitting around having a beer with him in Seattle one night. He says, yeah, I'm thinking about just posting this. I, like, I still like this book. I'm thinking about just posting it on my website, you know, and see if I get any interest. And I thought, Ted, I like, do you really want to do that? And we talked about it and then just moved on to another topic. About a month later, because he had a new agent now, and uh, the new agent was very aggressive about it. And that agent sold that book that he was about to give away for $40,000 as a first novel to Del Rey, who had already seen the novel, like, like years before. And later on, he wrote a, he, his second book was in a kind of a bidding war. And he, once again, I get the phone call, and he's kind of stressed out and everything. So I go meet him at the five spot. We're having a few beers talking about it, trying to get at what's wrong. And what was wrong was he had signed a contract for a tremendous amount of money for two books he hadn't written yet. And he felt like, you know, I mean, he's having all kinds of anxiety issues and stuff. And I just, Ted, it's great, you know, it's great you, you could do that. But, um, so he wrote these books, and I said, well, how did, you know, what is your method? And he, he was talking about this, um, not Sid Field, but some screenplay guy who was writing about the three-act structure, which we all know about and heard about our whole lives, and everybody tries to mess with it now and again. And the impression I got from my friend was that he had employed this three-act structure and you know magically got half a million dollars for his book. <laughs> so I immediately tried to figure this out. How can I do this without being you know too um, constipated about it? And I I just couldn't. I tried to I tried to outline, I tried this is a novel I'm working on right now and none of it worked and I just had to throw it all out the window. But I had a conversation with him later on and he told me that it's not that he 
studied this structure. He said his first novel sort of naturally fell into that, and then he tried to think about it a little bit more consciously on, a, on his next novels. Um, I think the answer is everybody at some point in their writing life hears about the three-act structure, and it always sounds like a great life preserver, like, oh, man, Dean Koontz talks about it a lot. He's, he writes everything to the three-act structure. And sometimes he's you know kind of successful with it, but, just, but he's written so much it's, it's now it sounds kind of repetitive and, and not really working. Just like if you go to the movies all the time, they're almost always a three act structure, a, a big Hollywood movie, and you get tired of them because you can, okay, now we're waiting for the, this part to happen. I, I think I found that a story, a novel that I'm working on, has a three act structure, but I didn't impose one going in, if that makes sense, or discovered as such. And the thing I'm working on right now is at least five acts, so it, it definitely violates that. But another form that I have written on is using, uh, because I was invited to, is using a fairy tale as a template for a novel. And sometimes it can be very useful if you can find a, a folk tale or a myth or a fairy tale that has a structure that kind of works with the idea that you've got. If you've got a story idea that's not really working that well, is to try writing to that armature and see if that helps you, because sometimes having a tested structure like that um, is a really useful thing to uh, to work with. Because I mean, fairy tales, even Disney couldn't find; they're still powerful, <laughs> despite Walt Disney doing what Walt Disney did to the fairy. You know, if Disney can't kill them, they're really good structures. <laughs> you know, so they're uh, they're useful things to to try and use sometimes. What do you do to motivate yourselves on the days when writing is a struggle? I drink. Drink heavily. That's what I was going to say. I look at the deadline on my contract and the fact that I've already spent the advance. <laughs> it does. I write first thing in the morning um, before the day has a chance to start piling up stuff. And on days I don't feel motivated, I tell myself, okay, all I have to write is 200 words. 200 words is three paragraphs of exposition, roughly. I say anybody can write three paragraphs of exposition, and then I can get up and I'm free for the whole day. So I sit down and I psych myself into it that way, and of course I inevitably end up writing more than 200 words. But that's all I have to do. Mm -hmm. And if you set yourself a very low bar, you find you jump over it easily, and then you're, you're willing to, to keep going, um, usually. On the days when I write the 200 and I just simply cannot go forward, okay, I did it. I wrote 200. Yeah. Yeah. So but th you that have works to do for that me. That minimum. You have to get I that have to do the minimum. Minute. Actually, it's usually 250. I have to be really, really sick for 200. <laughs> but I'll say, okay, 250 words. Anybody can write 200. That's one page. Yeah. Anybody can write one page. And then I'm free for the whole day for 24 <laughs> hours. That, that but I do end up writing yeah. more. Well, yeah, drinking is the fun, is the jokey answer, but yeah, what right. she says is the real answer. Right. And and a little a little bit deeper would be set it in your mind that you have to do this. Nobody's making you do it, but you're making yourself do it, so that it feels bad. So it feels worse not to do it than to do it on your worst day. I don't know exactly how you do that, but that's how I, that's how I get through any If you're just starting and 250 seem a lot, 100 words a day. Anybody can write 100 words a day. You can, you know, really, you can write 100 words a day on a, and a laundry list is longer than that. A grocery list is shorter. Yeah. So, you know, just, just uh, 
Set, tell yourself, this is all I have to do. You'll end up doing more. But if I, if I really don't want to, I can stop after 100 words. But it, yeah. And then you'll do it. Yeah. The problem that sometimes, I mean, we talked a little bit about finding time versus making time to write. Sometimes motivation and writing is easier uh, on the days I have a day job. You know, if I take a week off or something, I've got the whole day. When will I start writing? Well, yeah. first I need to do this. I need to vacuum. Yeah. I need... Yeah. On the days that I go to work, 12 o'clock rolls around. I have one hour. This is probably the only time I get today. Yeah. It really bumps up the urgency. I need to sit my down and start writing right now, yeah. or it's not happening. And I will be cranky on those days when it doesn't happen. I think that's an occupational hazard with writing full-time. I've had stretches where I haven't had to go to my night job, and I've actually gotten less done. Mm -hmm. I, I think it takes more discipline. You, you, discipline is imposed on you. If you want to write and you have very little time, you're going to find the time. If you have all day, everything just sort of I'm the opposite. Out. When I had a day job, which I haven't had for a long time, but I got less done. I got more done once I went full time. Mm -hmm. Partly because there was an economic imperative. Um, when I had a day job, I could say, well, if, you know, if I don't finish and sell this story, there's still money coming in. Mm -hmm. When there's money coming in nowhere else, and you know you've got the rent and you've got two kids, you sit there and you write. Yeah, one thing I do is I, I write on a, uh, well, except when I'm writing longhand, I'll write on a laptop, and the laptop doesn't allow me to check my email accounts and things like that. Turn oh, you yeah, turn off the internet. Um, but I also use Scrivener, which has a full screen setting, so that you can't see any of that stuff that's on the desktop. There's nothing there to distract you. All you can see are these giant words in front of you. <laughs> I set it up like a, a typewriter page. I, I've actually measured a piece of paper to match what, what shows up on the full screen. And um, that's all I look at yeah. until I get those pages. For me, the big temptation is online chess. I play a lot of online chess. Online I have chess. six partners. And I have to not have the chess site on the, ba on the bottom. I have to not have the screen up. Because right. otherwise, it'll say, your move. And I will immediately no, stop I right move, I gotta stop. Yeah. But I, that's my temptation. Everybody has some sort of temptation you have to overcome. Yeah, Cory Doctorow wrote an essay a couple of years ago about writing in the, in the age of distraction. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he, he said, slightly fatuously, that you, you should be able to write for 20 minutes a day, even if you had to check your Twitter feed and your Facebook and your emails. And that 20 minutes a day was a reasonable amount for any writer to be able to achieve. I don't like doing it by time, because yeah. time you can fritter away the 20 minutes. Word count, you have to produce something. We are pretty much out of time. Anybody have last comments, last thoughts? Or on last writes? <laughs> <laughs> Go and write. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.